Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 30. You can find it on page 920 in the Pew Bibles. Now, having been both a church planter and now sort of an official established church pastor, because we're, we're that old now, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, I'm not a planter any longer. I need to change my Facebook status, uh, I just realized that. But, uh, but given the fact that I've been both, I can assure you, as having been in both places, that one of our greatest concerns as both a planter and a pastor is for a healthy church and a growing church, right? I mean, if I'm going to give my life to something, if I'm going to pour myself out, it just, this is what I, I'm going to be about. Of course, I want that church, that, that flock that the Lord has given me to be healthy, and I want it to grow. And hopefully you do as well. I hope I'm not the only person in the room that cares about that. Well, you know, I mean, this church growth thing, I mean, it's kind of an obvious deal, right? I mean, we kind of know this. Pastors know this. Teachers know this. Publishers know this. Writers know this. Seminaries know this. Uh, events coordinators know this. People know this. And so the product of this knowledge that the churches want to grow is a plethora of materials, out there on church growth. You've got books, you've got blog articles, you've got classes, you've got talks, all of these surefire methods that if you just kind of do this, then your church will grow. Your church will be healthy. There are entire sections of Christian bookstores devoted to this very thing. There are men who make their careers out of blogging about this issue, right? There are groups where you could go and you can pay tens of thousands of dollars for them to come into your church and they're going to assess who you are and, and how you're doing and what you're all about, all right? And then they will give you recommendations. Of course, if you employ those recommendations, it will require much more money and much more time from you, but you can actually employ those things. And, and if you do, then your church will grow, Methods and strategies that include things like the aesthetics of your building and grounds, how you do lighting and, and, and sound and the quality of musicianship, how you advertise, how you make yourself known, how you invest in community service, uh, what kind of programs you have, uh, the length, height, depth, and breadth of teaching. You know, it can't be t- anything too, too heavy or, or too offensive or certainly too long. Uh, you, there are issues of like affinity groups. How are you going to reach certain pockets and you've got to break them all down so that you can reach them better? Uh, there, you've got to have high-functioning leaders, great children's ministry. There's branding. There's parking capacity. And what is most important of all, most important, you got to get this, comfortable seating and climate. Oh, and by the way, you might consider installing some cup holders to allow for your, your congregation to bring that boutique coffee and refreshments that you offer on Sundays. Hundreds of resources produced daily offering surefire methods for church growth. If you just do this, your church is going to grow. Now, it's not that we shouldn't consider those things, right? I mean, you you don't want to serve bad coffee, right? I mean, it is worth considering those things. But so many of these church growth resources focus on first impressions. 
They focus on appealing to the consumer. And given the appearance of growth, the appearance of something great happening here, on making people comfortable or doing all that we can to Velcro them to God and Velcro them to each other. I got that from one of these books. Now, somewhere along the way, though, God's method for church growth gets overshadowed or even lost in man's attempts to grow buildings and numbers. That evangelism is exchanged for entertainment or social services. Discipleship is discarded for devotionals. Just keep it light, help them to feel good about themselves, or, or very polished programs. Partnership in mission is replaced by personal preferences, or perhaps throwing a little money towards that overseas project that's happening somewhere out there that we really not connected to them at all. Now, these strategies might help to get more people in the door. They might even help you to get more decisions for Christ. Now, notice the quotes, right? Or, or more baptisms, or, or maybe even potentially grow your budget. But does it result in people devoting themselves, truly devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers? Does it result in an awe of God that's not, that's not momentary, that's not experienced when the music is kind of blaring and the lights are low and we're raising our hands in praise and then we walk out of there, we forget about it, but it's something that continues throughout the week? And all of God that is sustaining and is nourishing and is edifying. Do we replace true community with substitutes, social clubs, people that we just kind of like to be around and do things together? Does it result in generous hearts? Because we are so earnest about Jesus that people esteem us highly and we actually gain favor among all people because of how we live out the gospel. Do these Church growth strategies result in the word of God increasing, disciples multiplying, and even the faithful growing to maturity in obedience to the faith. Do these church growth strategies produce bold evangelists and missionaries out of ordinary, everyday, nothing real special about you attenders who are willing to go and share their faith even in the face of persecution? Does it result not just in this one church, but in churches throughout the region having peace and being built up, multiplying through church planting as they walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Because if they're not, then those methods, though they are things to consider, are not serving the ultimate mission of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, year after year, millions if not billions of dollars are spent on church growth strategies that fall short of God's design and purposes for the growth of His church. Now, I've said church growth a lot, and I hope you haven't already tuned out because this is for you as well, right? This is not just for the pastors, not just for the leaders, not just for those who are really committed and care, but if that's not really you, then it's not really for you. Because if you're here as someone who doesn't even consider yourself to be a Christian, I hope you understand that this message is for you. How do you think churches grow? 
They grow because people who do not know Christ come to see the glory and joy and hope and peace and believing and they, they're added to the church. If you're here desiring to grow as a Christian, this sermon is for you. If you are here desiring to see others grow in Christ, which I hope you are, then this sermon is for you. And if you are here as a member of Redeemer Church, let me assure you as your pastor, this message is most definitely for you. We need to think carefully about God's design for church growth. And Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30 is going to help us to do just that. And what we're going to see this morning in this passage is that God grows his church through evangelism, edification, and expansion. God grows his church through evangelism, edification, and expansion. Nothing flashy or fancy about it, but faithfulness to God's mission results in the growth of his church. And so with that, let's read Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians." Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul." You might look at this and be like, okay, that's great. But what does that really have to do with us? How do we really need to think about church growth? How do we even begin to think about implementing these kinds of things in our own body? Well, three methods. The first method that God gives for his church growth strategy is evangelism by a devoted community. Friends, do you understand that the church of God was born out of evangelism? It wasn't born because people thought they had a great idea, they could do something really well, or they were just angry with everybody else that was called a Christian, so they went and started another church. They just divided, thought they could divide and conquer that way. The church of God was born out of evangelism. Those who had been brought from death to life, from darkness to light, from an enemy of God to his beloved child, those who had been separated 
from God because of their rebellion due to sin. God had graciously saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for their sin and his resurrection from the dead so that they were now transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to live new lives for Jesus. By his grace, God had saved them through this gospel message and as a response, they repented of their sin and followed Christ in faith. And I hope you understand, this was not some momentary decision. This was not due to the fact that they decided to come forward one day, pray a sinner's prayer, and then try to be a good person after that. This wasn't because they, on occasion, gave thought to Jesus and wanted to honor him, or they prayed to God occasionally, or they thought, well, you know, maybe it would be a good idea to be a part of a church But God had done this work in them to change their hearts and to change their lives. And we have got to get this, right? This is problem number one of modern church growth strategy. Reduce the gospel down to something that's really, really easy and palatable, uh, you know, just palatable to people so they can just come forward, make the decision to move on. You can check the box, you can add them to your number, and then there you go, church growth. Make it easy, but it's neglecting the fact that God has to do this work in our hearts to change us. And because God has changed us, we are now new creations. We look and live differently than the world. Those who are in Christ now no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It's a new life. It's a new identity. It's a different life. They loved Christ and they desired to live for his glory and it was in the joy of their new life in Christ that they went about telling other people about Jesus. Evangelism is born out of joy. They couldn't help it. Their love for the Lord who saved them compelled them to take this life-changing message out to others. Guys, if you don't have a joy of in your salvation, you're not going to share him with others. You won't. But it was their joy that led them to speak the word and to preach the Lord Jesus. Now when it says speaking the word there in verse 19 and preaching the Lord Jesus in verse 20, don't think preaching and teaching on the level that a pastor or an elder does before a congregation. That word speaking there is as casual and as everyday as speech could possibly be. It just kind of flowed. It was part of life. It was part of the conversation daily. And that word preaching there is actually evangelize. It's proclaiming the Lord Jesus to anyone who would listen as they traveled from here to there, as they went about their daily life, as they went to their job, as they took care of their kids, as they mowed their lawn, as they did whatever they were doing. They were doing it with gospel intentionality because of their joy in Jesus and their new, their new identity in him. And they did that even in the face of persecution. Verse 19 says that now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, this is a persecution that had started 15 or more years earlier. It's a persecution that's continuing on. It's a persecution that first drove people out to Samaria. We read about them in Acts chapter 8. The church was birthed there. Now it's driving people as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So the gospel now has been driven by persecution beyond the borders of Judea and Samaria. It's now into the ends of the earth. Phoenicia was a coastal plain 
of Syria, right along the Mediterranean. Cyprus was an island in the Mediterranean, and Antioch was one of the most important cities in Syria, actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. All three of these places were major hubs for trade, for travel, for politics, for commerce, and they were connected to the rest of the known world. Now, not that the gospel didn't also go to rural areas as well, but Luke makes it a point to tell us that the gospel went out to these major city centers with the purpose of the gospel being proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And there they are in the veins that lead to the inroads outward. And so despite the fact that their faith in Jesus resulted in them losing their homes and losing their jobs and losing family and friends, everything that they had come to know, their way of life there in Jerusalem or in Judea because they had to, to leave, they had to leave it all behind. They were still devoted to Jesus and they were committed in their joy to making the glory of Christ known among the nations. It didn't matter. You take away my livelihood, you throw my family in prison, you force me to run for my life, I'm still gonna tell other people about the glory of Christ. I'm still gonna do it. I'm still gonna bear witness to his name to the ends of the earth. Friends, that devotion to evangelism, that devotion to speaking the word of Christ, to proclaiming the Lord Jesus is a result of joy that comes from their faith in Christ. They were living just as the apostle Paul was when he said, for me, you know what, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? That wasn't just for those special few apostles. This is for everybody. Driven out by persecution. Suffering for the sake of Christ's name, and yet in their joy, they're proclaiming him everywhere they go. Friends, the church or the churches that were started there in Antioch didn't come easy. I hope you understand that. These churches didn't pop up because people said, hey, you know what? You know, let's go start a church. Where's a cool place where we can go and start a church? You know, like a really, really hip place, really trendy place. It's kind of on the cutting edge of everything so we can look really awesome. I know. Let's go to Antioch. It's not it at all. This church was born out of persecution. It was born out of hardship. It was born out of suffering. But that hardship and suffering served to fuel their joy in Jesus their dependence upon Jesus, their hope in Jesus, their faith in Jesus. A joy that made much of Jesus. This was a Christ-centered joy that resulted in evangelism through which this new church was born. Now friends, this is important because so often we try to start churches for the wrong reason. We want to start churches to appeal to certain types of people, right? Got this type of people in mind, this, this particular demographic, I'm going to go and I'm going to try to reach them. Or, or we want to do church better than the last church that we were part of, right? So we're going to leave that and we're going to do it right this time. Or, or we, want to, we want to start a church that's going to appeal to my needs and my desires and my wants and my cravings. And, or we want it to look a certain way aesthetically. It's got to be, you know, it's got to be really, really cool, 
We plant churches out of frustration and out of an unwillingness to reconcile with those who hurt our feelings. And so rather than pursue reconciliation to the glory of Christ, we divide, we split. Or we plant churches because we think that's just the hip thing to do these days, right? It's just really trendy. It's really cool. I want to be cool, so I go plant a church. That's not God's design for church planting. The church in Antioch began because people who loved Jesus more than they loved their comfort, more than they loved their security, more than they loved family or friends or familiarity or what just comes easy, what just comes just smooth, you know, just makes me feel so good about myself. They loved Jesus more than all of that and were eager to proclaim his name. And friends, any effort towards church planting, towards missions, towards revitalization, towards replanting or to church growth needs to be born out of a Christ-centered joy that makes much of Jesus. And notice that, that this church wasn't started by the next rock star celebrity pastor, but by a community of never named followers of Christ. Actually, there were two groups, right? I mean, in verse 19... You've got those who spoke the word to no one except Jews. And you've got this other group in verse 20 where it says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. So this is a group that's comprised of people originally from that Mediterranean island Cyprus. Why they would ever leave there, I don't really know, right? I guess they loved Jesus more than they loved island living, right? Or, and from Cyrene, a city in northern Africa, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, perhaps there were two groups in order to address language barriers or, or cultural issues there, right? Like, so there was this, there was this Hebrew or this Aramaic-speaking church for those Jews who didn't know or how to, how to speak or to read Greek, and then you've got this Greek-speaking church over here that would appeal to Jews and or Gentiles that couldn't read or, or speak Hebrew, right? That, that language barrier, there, there can be legitimate reasons for that. You know, if you don't speak the language, it's kind of hard for you to understand the gospel, right? So I get that, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Given all that we dealt with last week, and what we're going to continue to deal with, especially in chapter 15, this division is probably not a good thing. Now, what we have here is you've still got some that are, are going to the Jews only. I'm going to people that are like me. I'm, I'm reaching this specific demographic, this people that I like, I feel comfortable with, this people that I think they're just better than all the rest of them. Right? That's my target. That's my audience. That's who I'm approaching. Forget everybody else. But then you've got others understanding Christ's intention for the inclusion of the Gentiles who themselves would have either been Hellenized Jews or Gentiles to begin with if they're from Cyprus or Cyrene and they took the gospel to all without partiality. He said, no, we're not going to do that demographic thing. We're not going to break up and show partiality in that way. We're going to take the gospel to all because the gospel's for all. We're going to love people regardless of their background, regardless of their baggage, regardless of anything else about them. We're going to take the gospel to them. That's what we're doing. This group spoke to the Hellenists also, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. 
And given what Luke has just emphasized in chapters 10 and 11 with the inclusion of the Gentiles and his addition of this word also, it is safe to conclude then that their evangelism as a Greek-speaking community would have resulted in a multicultural, multi-ethnic community comprised of both Jew and Gentile in one of the largest and most diverse cities in the Roman Empire. Why is that a big deal? Well, that's a big deal because people look at that church and they're like, why are those people together? That doesn't make sense. You go into the city, you go to Chicago, what do you see? You got pockets of people, right? You got Polish over here, you got the Italians over here, you got Chinatown right down here. Everybody's segmented off. You go to a city, you see like people are just like coming from all over and they're together. Then you see that the gospel really does have the power to transform and to unite people. And the gospel is made visible in their racial unity. In the fact that these people have nothing in common but Christ and that means everything, that puts the gospel on display. That's a compelling community. That's the kind of community that we want to be. Now you can try to speculate all day long as to who these men from Cyprus and Cyrene were. Was this, was this Simon of Cyrene? You know, the guy that, that carried Jesus' cross? Or, or maybe it was Simon's sons, Rufus and Alexander, because why on earth would, would Mark make a point of, of mentioning their names in, in, in Mark 15? That doesn't really make sense to me. Or, or maybe, maybe it was Lucius of Cyrene, because you know, we know that by chapter 13, he's, he's at least one of the elders there in Antioch. Or, or maybe these men were, uh, from Cyprus were friends or relatives of Barnabas. Or, or maybe they were converts of, of Stephen or Paul because both had gone to the synagogue of the freedmen to preach Christ to the Hellenists there. And we know that Cyrenians were among them. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. Luke doesn't want us to know. Because it's not about what tribe you come from, right? It's not about who's the leader, who started the whole thing. It's not about the big celebrity pastor or any of that. Luke doesn't want us to know because there are no lone rangers here. When it, This church in Antioch was born out of a community of believers that were committed to sharing their love for Jesus. It's not about gifted leaders. This evangelism was Christ-centered and it was community-based. As this community of believers in Antioch spoke the word, both Jew and Gentile came to faith in Christ. And again, this is so often where we go wrong when we think about church growth strategies. We think that evangelism is the result of slick presentations, flashy productions, demographic precision, concise winsome deliveries orated by gifted, few charismatic leaders, when in reality it is the faithful, the consistent participation in the life of the community of faith that intentionally shares their love of Jesus with others that results in genuine church growth. It is the result of the proclamation of the body of Christ. Not silent service, you know, they were all involved in just kind of community projects, or, or it wasn't the result of a few big mouths with big egos that the church was born and grow to maturity in Christ. It was because the community of faith loved Jesus, and they loved each other, and they loved the lost, and they talked about what they loved. Friends, when we think about evangelism, I hope you know we are not peddling a mediocre meal to people who are already stuffed fat on all the best dishes that this world can provide. 
like, well, you got Jesus over here. I'm like, world's got all this stuff. And I'm but you know, I mean, Jesus, he's okay. We are offering an eternally satisfying meal to those who are starving. So we don't have to package or produce it. We don't need to dress it up or, or market Christ out to those who, who don't really need him. We're not trying to convince them of what garnish they need to eat and put on their hamburgers. We are imploring them to choose life over death. We are pleading with them to take hold of the greatest blessing that they could ever know. A blessing that they need more than anything else. The only thing that could ever produce eternal satisfaction and hope and glory. To feel that every longing that you ever had based upon its true goal and its true source, that which leads to faith and hope and love and rest, that is the Jesus that we proclaim. But if Jesus is not our joy, then we won't be unified and we won't share them with others. And of course, none of this is possible unless God is empowering their witness of Christ. In verse 21, it says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So they, those who believed turned to the Lord, that's repentance and faith, right? They turned away from sin to Christ, following him in faith. It's interesting to me how often we can wrongly conclude that the hand of the Lord is with us. Have you ever noticed this? Man, my life is going great. Healthy, wealthy, successful. Clearly the hand of the Lord is with me. Well, friends, tell that to these men and women who have been driven from everything that they'd come to know because of their faith in Jesus. And yet it's God who says, my hand is with them. Well, we've got all of these great facilities, right? I mean, we're just growing numerically. Like, attendance is up. Giving is up. We've added all of these new programs that cater to specific needs, to different ages, to different demographics. Clearly, the hand of the Lord is with us because look at all this great stuff. But yet, we don't see people devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. Sure, they'll come, they'll attend the show, sure, they'll give some money, but their lives are not being transformed. Well, you know, we've got these just powerful, powerful worship experiences. I mean, people are just, man, they're just giving their all to Jesus. You know, they're, they're raising their hands, they're closing their eyes, they're, they're dancing, you know, they're, they're praying and weeping. And, and just, it's so, I mean, you could just tell that the Holy Spirit has, has come upon them. And so clearly the hand of the Lord is with us. But yet during the week, the awe of that experience is gone. And they don't look any different than the world around them. There's no transformation. That exaltation will pick up again the next time the lights are lowered and the music is blaring. There's no evidence of genuine repentance of sin and a turning to Christ in faith. Just let me tell you about these church growth strategies. If, 
if man can produce it, it's not from God. If we can manipulate it, if we can do it in our own power, whether it come in the lowering of lights or the elevating of the volume or the quality of musicianship or, or the, the charisma of the leaders or, or you know, just this particular strategy that we're beginning to employ or whatever, I mean, you name it, if the hand of the Lord or if the hand of man can do it, it is not the hand of the Lord. There are a lot of, of these things that we can do to generate the appearance of church growth according to these trends, according to these methods. But do you want, do you want to know what evidence God gives that his hand was with them? Do you want to know? Because he tells us right here in this text, right? Persecuted people joyfully sharing their love for Jesus. The body of Christ laying aside cultural preferences and barriers to take the gospel to people that are so completely different from them that you can't even begin to imagine. A people that worship many idols and who honor their gods by having sex with prostitutes. I can worship whatever I want, whatever flavor I want, and I can do it in whatever way I want. And you're going to tell me to give all that up to follow Jesus. And you've got people that are genuinely turning away from their sin, away from finding solace in the comforts of the world to truly know and love and follow Jesus. How do we know that the hand of the Lord was with them? Because man cannot do that. I can't do that. You can't do that. We can't do that. Only God can do that. That's how you know the hand of the Lord was with them. When it is inexplicable that those people would turn away from that lifestyle to, to sacrifice of themselves to, to pursue Christ, that they will willingly face suffering joyfully for the sake of making his name known, that they will unify themselves together, though they got nothing in common but Christ. But why are those two people together, but they're loving each other and they're reconciling and they're, they're pursuing greater Christ-likeness in their lives? Like those kinds of things, like they're, they're repenting of their sin and they're, they're believing and they're, they're being transformed into the image of the glory of Christ. I'm like, how does that happen? It happens because the hand of the Lord is with them. Great grace was upon them all. We can't do that. Only God can. And so the hand of the Lord was evident through the evangelism of this devoted community. Second strategy that God uses to grow his church is edification under faithful leadership. I mean, think about this situation, right? You've got this brand new congregation in Antioch, and they love Jesus. They loved each other impartially. You got Jew and Gentile coming together there. They're proclaiming the Lord Jesus to those who are outside the church and to one another. They're clearly growing. It's evident that the hand of the Lord was upon them all. And so they're good, right? I mean, just leave them alone. Like, what more could you want? What more could you expect from this, this young congregation? They're vibrant. They're growing. Well, apparently they needed more. Because in verse 22... When the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, the apostles and elders there sent Barnabas to Antioch, sent him on this grueling 350-mile week-long journey to go and check up on them. Right? You see, they needed to discern whether or not this fledgling group of professing believers in Antioch was truly Christian. 
Or was it some sort of deviation from the gospel? Were they maybe professing Christ but not truly living for him? And so since this congregation was the product of the faithful evangelism of Greek-speaking men from Cyprus, they sent Barnabas, a faithful Greek-speaking man from Cyprus, to discern the body. And he's looking for some things. Did they have sound doctrine? Right? Were they truly preaching the Lord Jesus? That's a body of doctrine. Were they truly speaking the word? Were they, were they displaying genuine Christian love to all? Were their lives marked by a sincere, a true repentance and faith? Is there clear evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives? That's what Barnabas came to check up on. Verse 23 says that when Barnabas came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. He saw the grace of God. He, he didn't see a big show. He didn't see lots of numbers or lots of excitement or just happy, clappy kind of feelings. He saw the grace of God. He rejoiced to see that God was at work through the faithful evangelism of this devoted, never-named community to save sinners and to unite them to, to each other in Christ. Praise God that they were sound in both life and in doctrine. A healthy church not only teaches and preaches and proclaims sound doctrine to each other, but they also adorn the doctrine of God with their lives. And having seen it for himself, Barnabas was able to discern the transforming grace of God in this young multicultural body. And so what did he do? Barnabas just signed off on them and kind of went back, right? Just like, well, you know, I mean, they're, they're clearly excited, you know, like there are people coming like crazy and it's like there's a lot of energy, but I, I mean, they're a little squishy in, in, in faith and practice. Those, those 20-minute inspirational talks are, I mean, they're, they're weak, but man, do they have a pa passion for, for rock and praise songs. And so he just signs off on them and goes, goes back home, right? Goes back to Jerusalem. No, it says he stayed and he led them. Though this young church plant was the product of God's grace, though they were committed to evangelism and to one another's discipleship, they still needed leadership. They still needed to be edified, to be built up in the faith. They still needed to grow to maturity in life and in doctrine. They may have started well, but that's no guarantee that they would end well. And so Barnabas, this good man, this, this faithful man, this man who is full of the spirit and of faith and appointed by the church in Jerusalem as a leader, exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Friends, this is why we need the church. This is why Christ gave the church leaders and calls us to submit to them. Because we need to persevere to the end. And these leaders that he calls us to, they're not, they're not you know, charismatic. They're not visionaries. They're not CEO-type gifted leaders. But they're good men, faithful men, full of the Holy Spirit. We need these leaders to be exhorted to persevere in the faith, to remain in the Lord with all our hearts. You don't need the church to hear the gospel and to make decisions for Jesus. You don't. And so often that's, that's what 
cultural Christianity has, has traded the church for. But you do need the church to remain in Christ. Not that you lose your salvation, right? But that through modern manipulation, we can so deceive ourselves because of these great experiences that we have, all of this emotion, this anxiety and coming forward and and making decisions for Jesus and having these emotional experiences. We think that that is what Christianity is about. When in reality, Christ has not truly dwelt in our hearts through faith. The church is God's means of encouragement and exhortation and edification towards maturity in Christ. This was God's idea because we need it. You need it. I need it. I hope you understand. I'm not saying this so that I can grow my numbers in this church. I'm saying this because this is God's design for our good so that he can complete this work that he has begun in us in the day of Christ Jesus. And he called the church to be a part of that. And of course, maturity requires faithful leaders to guide us. It doesn't matter how cool or how edgy that leader is. It doesn't matter how many books he's written or how many people listen to his podcast. His capacity for executive administration, what the church needs is a good man, a man uh, that is full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, someone who loves the church and sacrifices for the church and encourages the church towards true Christ-likeness, a leader like we see here in Barnabas. And the truth is, the church needs more than one. As Barnabas faithfully led this new church plant, verse 24 says that a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas said to himself, you know what that means? That means I'm awesome. I mean, look at how great I am that all of these people are coming to the Lord through my ministry. No. Barnabas hits the pause button. He goes and he makes another 60 to 70 mile journey to track down this guy, Saul of Tarsus. I don't even know where he is, but I'm going to go find him because that's how bad I need help. Right? So Barnabas went to to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Now, now Barnabas could have been thinking, you know, well, man, I need help, right? And I I can't go all the way back to Jerusalem. I mean, that 350-mile journey was insane. I I can't take that kind of time. Who's somebody that's closer that could just kind of help me out a little bit? Oh, oh, you know, I know. I remember that guy, Saul. He's from Tarsus. Tarsus is not that far, far away. I'll go get him. Or, or maybe, you know, we know that Saul continued ministry in and around Tarsus, so perhaps Saul had at some point made his way to Antioch. And so the church there in Antioch knew about him, right? So, so Barnabas is like, I, I need help. I need, so who, who can I call? And, and the church was like, well, you know, that guy, that guy Saul, you know, he came over to us once in a while. Maybe go get him. Or, or, or maybe it was because Barnabas remembered that Saul was, was just so sharp. I mean, the guy was well-educated. He was well-groomed. He just had everything together. He was well-versed in both Jewish and Gentile cultures. He would have been a great asset to this multicultural church. You know, he just totally fit the job description that we're putting out there. And so just because of those purely pragmatic things, we're going to go and we're going to track him down. But more than likely, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, remembered Saul's testimony in Jerusalem of how Christ had chosen him as an instrument to carry Jesus' name before the Gentiles. 
So even after all this time, and by this time, I hope you understand, it's like 13 or 14 years. He went and found him and said, Saul, I believe that this Gentile church in Antioch might be the next step in this call that Christ has placed before you. Would you come and join me in this ministry to both Jew and Gentile, to the children of Israel, to kings and Gentiles that God has called you to? I mean, sure, Saul was well-educated. He was experienced. He was passionate about Jesus. He had this clear call to ministry. And so, yeah, he was a good choice to partner in this ministry together with in this plurality of leadership in this brand new congregation. But let's not forget that these two men were not just considered leaders by worldly standards. Saul and Barnabas were men of character. They were men of deep conviction. They were men that showed the competency and capacity to lead congregation, men who were clearly called by God and confirmed by the church to lead this church plant towards maturity in Christ. For the church to be edified and built up, it needs the same kind of godly spiritual leaders today. Friends, don't be deceived by all the books and branding. What the church truly needs to grow is for Christ to gift her with good men full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, who are willing to give their lives to faithfully shepherd the flock of God. And what do these shepherd leaders do? Well, contrary to the church growth books out there, these leaders didn't look like just administrative strengths, marketing, social directors, and, and the like. These leaders were not social club presidents or lobbyists for the latest political movement. These shepherds were primarily teachers, teachers of life and doctrine. Life and doctrine. In verse 23, we saw that Barnabas exhorted the flock and obviously he and the church would have continued to evangelize if a great many were added to the Lord. And in verse 26, it says that for a whole year, he and Saul met with the church. They gathered the church together. This learning was meant to happen corporately, not individually, like I just go out and sit with my Bible and that's all I need. Or just as long as I, you know, kind of attend community group every once in a while, I don't, I don't need to get together corporately as a body and learn. But no, they gathered together. He taught them together taught great many people. Their primary ministry was not events coordinator, advertiser, celebrity, social worker, or CEO. No, they taught and they prayed. They evangelized and they edified. And the church grew by the grace of God as the Lord continued to add men and women to himself. And so they discerned the body, they led the body, and they taught the body. That's what they do. And of course, if they taught a great many people, it meant that a great many people had a yearning and a desire to be taught. He'd be the greatest teacher in the world. Nobody shows up there and nobody's going to learn anything. So it's not just about the skill of the, the teacher that compels people in, but there's an earnest desire to learn. They didn't see the church as a social club or a community service non-for-profit. They didn't come to be entertained or to get just enough of, the, of Jesus to, to sort of fix them until the next time they needed to come and get just a, a little bit more. 
No, they gathered together continually to learn this way, this truth, this life in Christ. They recognized their need, and they consistently devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And in verse 26, Luke adds that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, this is big. This came up the other day in our community group leader meeting that we had just on Monday right? The question was posed, can you be a Christian and not be a disciple? And what's, what's underneath that is this idea of can you be a believer in Jesus and not, not really be a follower of Christ? Well, no, right? I mean, it, you look here, right? You see the disciples of Christ have already throughout the book of Acts been called believers. They've been called saints. They've been called the church. They've been called disciples. They've been called brothers. They've been called Nazareans. They've been called people of the way. And now after all of that, there's this derogative term that emerges. This is not a pleasant thing. Oh, they're Christians. They belong to Christ. You, you know, it's like this, this term is not like less than a disciple or a follower of Christ. So like you got Christians here, you got disciples up here. No, this is above that because now they're actually being mocked because they follow Christ. This is like that term Puritan. It's not like the Puritans gathered together and said, you know, what should we call ourselves? What do we want to be about? Oh, we, you know, let's call ourselves Puritan. No, it's the, in it, like those people that were against them that said, look at those guys. They, they're such idealists. They want to go and they want to purify the church and, and, and purify the government. I mean, what are, what are they thinking? I mean, I think their knickers are a little too constricting there. You know, got their, their wigs on too tight. It's like, like the term cricker where I come from. I mean, if you're familiar with cricker, but a cricker is one who likes to swim in creeks where sewage flows into. It's not a pleasant term. No, they, this is not a term of endearment. This is not a term that is lesser than a disciple. It is a more serious term because people are mocking them for loving and following Jesus. They so love him and live for him and talk about him and that it's like he just comes up all the time. They, they're Christians. This is not a, a comfortable, convenient term for those who just want to add a little bit of spirituality to their lives. This is for those who belong to Jesus. But you know, despite the ridicule and the persecution, God's grace was upon them. God continued to add people to himself, and the church grew as they were edified under faithful leaders. And so God grows his church through evangelism by a devoted community, through edification under faithful leadership, and third, by expansion through cooperative partnerships. Now, not only was the mother church in Jerusalem careful to want to discern the body, right, to make sure whether or not they're truly Christian. So they they send their their beloved and gifted brother Barnabas to lead and to teach that, that young church plant there. Verse 27 says that they also sent other gifted leaders. Sometime later, now in these days, the prophet, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And so they're not just concerned about sending one leader, but a number of people who would help guide this new church in the Word of God. These prophets 
<clears throat> who would not be at their church any longer, who would not be available to serve in their ministries, in, in their mission to, to Jerusalem. Now they're losing them. They're going out. I hope you can see that that is evidence of, of how much they love this congregation. You think about that, you're like, man, they already sent their best in Barnabas. I'm like, and let's face it, you know, if I had my choice between Barnabas, this giving, sacrificial, loving, encouraging guy, and, and Agabus, this guy who's just kind of warning us of a famine, I, I, I'll, take, I'll take Barnabas. I mean, just, just keep Agabus and all these buddies back there. But no, they send many. They loved the gospel. And they desired to see this young church grow in a right and healthy relationship with Christ. And so they sent Barnabas, and then later they sent even more prophets. And, and I know that Agabus, you know, it talks about how Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be this great famine over all the world that would take place in the days of Claudius. But don't think that that's all that a prophet did. Right? That he just kind of sat around quietly until like some sort of prediction came to mind and then they were just kind of stood up and like, oh, you know, Angela, you're going to drive to Indianapolis in a week or two. Which you probably will, right? See, I'm a prophet. <laughs> uh, that's not it. No, more often than not, prophets were inspired or gifted preachers. They exhorted, they encouraged, they strengthened the church, they warned and rebuked, they comforted and they consoled, they were discerning, they were visionaries, and on occasion, one might predict a future event. Now, clearly, Agabus was foretold this by the Spirit, but let's not blow this all out of proportion here, okay? Yeah, yeah uh, this, this isn't that uncommon. I mean, they do live in the Middle East. Famines were pretty common, there were four famines during Claudius's reign, four of them, not one, four. It's not an unexpected, unanticipated thing. Now, one of them was really bad, and Josephus even talks about how, how bad it was even for Jerusalem, which is many miles away from, uh, from Rome and, and all of that, but it's not that uncommon, right? It's like, it would almost be like what I just did there with, with Angela or, or like, say, the head of the Southern Baptist Convention disaster relief standing up and saying, listen, it's only a matter of time before another hurricane like Katrina comes, and, and we need to do these things to prepare for that. I mean, you would look at that and be like, yeah, right, right? And so, yes, this was given by the Holy Spirit, but I mean, let's face it, what, what is Agabus's other prediction that we're given in the book of Acts, right? It, it's about Paul's imprisonment. Paul is making his way to Jerusalem, right? And, and this is after his third missionary journey, and he's got enemies everywhere, right? Everybody along the way knows what's going to happen, right? Every time he stops, they're like, listen, Paul, don't, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest you. And so Agabus, I mean, he's just got a little flair about his, right? He just, he grabs Paul's belt, ties him up, like, look, this is what they're going to do to you, man. That's, that's like a sermon illustration. And so, yes, this was from the Holy Spirit, but we don't need to blow that out of proportion. That's not even a prophet's primary job description. The primary function was to preach for the edification of the church. 
And so because the church in Jerusalem loves the gospel, because they are committed to the mission of Christ, not building their own kingdoms, they send some of their most gifted leaders to strengthen these young churches to keep popping up as ordinary, everyday believers are faithful to make disciples of all nations. But friends, the mother church is not the only one who is giving, who's sacrificing, who is sending their best. So is this young church in Antioch. I mean, here you got this baby congregation made up of Jew and Gentile, but when they hear Agabus' prophecy in verse 29, the disciples there in Antioch determined, everyone according to his own ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders. Now notice there that the, it's not the, the apostles any longer, but it's apostles, it's elders. It's a more broad term, right? And they sent this relief to these elders in Jerusalem by the hand of their best, Barnabas and Saul. This partnership was not one-sided. It was mutual. Out of gratitude for all that the church in Jerusalem had done to bless them, this church in Antioch wanted to be a blessing to them as well. And so upon hearing Agabus' prophecy, each one determined in his heart, according to his own ability, to send financial relief to Judea, each according to their need. And they sent it in the hands of their best leaders, Barnabas and Saul an event that Paul would later record in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as having taken place some 14 to 17 years after his conversion. Friends, this is a big deal. Because most of the church growth strategies out there focus on how to build your numbers, how to build larger buildings, how to build bigger budgets, how to develop better leaders for your ministries, Not to give it all away for the cause of Christ. Partnership to to strengthen or to start new congregations that don't have celebrity pastors who are piped in via video stream are not all that common. And I know because I've looked for them. As a young church planter, just trying to keep my head above water, I looked for strong mutual partnerships, but I didn't. The only ones I found were those who were like, hey, you know, if you want to start a campus... We'll pipe our guy in, right? And you could do that, and you'll call it by our name, and you'll be under our leadership, and we be doing that, but it's just, it's really about us and not about you. So often churches are only looking to grow themselves, or they have this give only enough to get mentality that leaves these young congregations susceptible to dangers like insufficient resources, false teaching, or burnout that can destroy these young flocks. Or church planting strategies suggest that young churches find older churches to milk them for all they're worth. And so partnership is completely one-sided. For, for these young churches, partnership is not cooperation or mutual blessing. It's consumerism. It's taking advantage of opportunities. It's capitalism at its worst. It's taking them for all that you can to fatten yourself. You need to bless me because I'm so great and I can do what you're unable to do. And so rather than you trying to do it, you just need to give to me, right? So you go to the older church, right? If they have money, you give me your money. If, you, if there's a wise, mature church, you say, give me your leaders. If it's a dying church, give me your building. Give me, give me, give me, give me. I'm young. I need it. 
But here we see that partnership that leads to the expansion of gospel ministry is mutual. Both churches seeking to bless and to serve the other, both committed to the growth and health of the other. That's what partnership is meant to look like. It's mutual. Friends, this is why we're a part of a denomination. Because it's bigger than what we're doing. This is why we're a part of an association of churches that largely are dying. Because we want to be a blessing to them. This is why I served as the chair for the search committee as we found this new DOM for our association. This is why we train up guys through our preaching lab and we farm them out to other churches. This is why we... we, invest in and support and pray for missionaries throughout the world because God's design for church growth is as much about giving as it is about getting. And so this, this is how God grows his church. Not through the latest fads or strategies, not through slick presentations, charismatic leaders, motivating music, or polished programs. No, true church Growth is, measured, is not measured in nickels, nails, or noses, buildings, bodies, or dollar bills. Instead, God uses much more ordinary means to accomplish his life-transforming message, his life-transforming mission. God grows his church through evangelism by a devoted community, through edification under faithful leadership, and by the expansion through cooperative partnership. And he will add to the number in his own good time as we, in the present power of his grace, which is at work within us, devote ourselves to these very things. How are we doing in devoting ourselves as a community to evangelism? How committed are each one of us towards edification? In developing leaders and submitting to our leaders, and growing in Christ's likeness? How many of us are really, really committed to, to recognizing our own part in, in this global expansion of gospel proclamation as we willingly serve others, maybe even more for their good than ours? No matter who you are, no matter how young in age or how young in the faith, we all have a part to play in this church growth strategy. And as we are faithful to devote ourselves to these things, we can be confident that the hand of the Lord will be with us. And we can be sure of that because God grows his church through evangelism, edification, and expansion. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this reminder of your good purposes for the church. And what you would have us to be about. Lord, we know it's really tempting to to kind of compare ourselves to churches that that appear to be growing, appear to have a lot of life, and, and just think that if we just do what they do, then we'll have success. It's easy for us to to try to trade the methods that you have given, these, these surefire methods that, that you supply for other things that, that maybe can, can give the appearance of godliness, but in reality are denying its power. Lord, I pray that 
we would truly find our joy and our identity in Christ. That we as a body would continually point one another back to Jesus so that we find our hope and our life and our peace in Him. And as we do that as a body, loving one another, committing ourselves to this gospel, to sound doctrine, and to living it out in our lives, I pray that it would compel us outward to those who do not know Christ, to other churches and other places, to to be a blessing to them as well. Lord, I pray that you would give us your heart for your mission. And that comes as we find glory in Christ. And so, Lord, help us to delight in the truth and beauty of Jesus. As we are disciples who make disciples, we know that these things will be accomplished. And so, Lord, renew and our efforts and and stir our hearts to greater affection for Jesus and for his people. Lord, help us to all see that we have a part to play in this, that it's not just for a select few who have taken on positions of leadership, but it's for us all. And Lord, I pray that our ultimate goal would be to make the glory of Christ known among the nations. Not my glory, not our glory, not how we feel or any of that, but the glory of Christ to be made known among the nations. It's in his name we pray. Amen.